Welcome. This is podcast number two for The Reign of the Gathering God. The title of this podcast is Parables and Unclean Spirits. Parables and Unclean Spirits. The section of Mark's Gospel that we're looking at this coming Sunday is Mark 3, 7 through 4, 34. So the first section, uh, we focused especially on that conflict series that was going on uh, in Galilee, in and around Capernaum. Our location is still the same in this next section, the geography. It's still Galilee and still in and around Capernaum. In particular, uh, its synagogue and the house. So as the last section ended in three, one, chapter 3, 1 through 6, we were in the Capernaum synagogue. Uh, Peter's house is in that same town. We saw that house in the first chapter of Mark. Uh, and that's presumably, it's the only house that we know of So that in, the, in this gospel, so that when it says Jesus went home, it's presumably to Peter's house. That appears to be his, his, um, his headquarters, his base of operations there in Capernaum. But whether it's that house or somebody else's, some other house, um, the home seems to be there in Capernaum. So in our series of scenes in this section, in chapter 3, verses 7 through 12, Jesus uh, goes out by the sea, and that's the, understood to be the Sea of Galilee, and Capernaum is right there on the sea. The next section, verses 13 through 19, Jesus goes up the mountain, Mark says. Well, there aren't any mountains there as we know mountains, but the, but the sea does sit in a, in a bowl of hills, and there are hills that are there up above Capernaum. And I presume that that's what Mark is visualizing and that when he goes up, up the hillside. Up the mountain, of course, may have um, weighty implications um, for anybody reading the Bible because then you've got Moses up on mountains and you've got Elijah up on, mount, uh, up on the mountain. Mountains are symbolic for, for meeting God and for, for, for God's message to the people. But anyway, that seems to be the place, just outside Capernaum. The third scene comes at the end of verse 19 through the, through the rest of the chapter. Jesus goes home. He goes to the house, which again I'm assuming is Peter's house there in Capernaum. But whatever house, whatever home Mark has in mind, we're, all, we're still in that same locale. And then the final scene, which is chapter 4, the parable chapter, Jesus goes out beside the sea again to teach. So everything's happening right there in and around Capernaum, in a very small location there in Galilee. That's our geography. I should mention also that in chapter 4, the parable chapter, most of the parables are happening out there by the water where Jesus is teaching, but you've got the mention in verse 10. When he was alone, those around him asked him about the parables. You actually have a back and forth of here's the public stuff happening out there right beside the sea, and then later on when they're home, Jesus unpacks some things for them, for just the disciples. You've got an inside group and the outside group. So we, we are in Galilee, we're beside the sea. It might be worth starting to kind of build an idea of what Galilee means for us. It's the literal Galilee, but what is Mark, 
what kind of a theme is Mark building for Galilee? This is going to become important because at the end of the gospel, Mark's going to send us back to Galilee. So what is Galilee? So far, Galilee seems to be the place where Jesus is engaging with the people and proclaiming the kingdom, the, the reign of the gathering God, and encountering opposition for doing so. That's about all we have so far. In terms of themes, what's happening in this section, um, on, for the Sunday session, I'm calling it drawing up sides. You do have, in this section of Mark, you've got the sides, are, the lines are being drawn, those who are for Jesus and those who are against Jesus. So Mark gives us first two stories of kind of a consolidation or a firming up of a Jesus group, those who are drawn to him. And then the rest of, the chap the rest of chapter 3 is drawing apart from Jesus, drawing up in opposition to Jesus, drawing up sides. And that's an interesting thing to ponder. Here you've got a Jesus who's proclaiming the reign of the gathering God. He's here to gather people together into in this gracious kingdom. Um, but it ends up, uh, one of the results of his gathering work is that it draws lines. It draws oppositions, those who are for him and those who are against him. So first, um, and this is what we'll be unpacking a whole lot more when we gather on Sunday, First, we have the, the gathering for Jesus, verses 7 through 12 of chapter 3. Jesus goes out besides the, beside the sea, and a huge gathering comes around him. People are flocking to him, gathering around him, coming from Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, beyond the Jordan, the region of Tyre and Sidon. It's the whole of ancient Palestine and lands to the north. People are coming from everywhere. They've heard about him, and so he's, the word is getting out there, and the gathering God is gathering people to himself. What's he doing? He's teaching them, he's healing their diseases, and he's casting out unclean spirits. Um, notice that they, and this is verse, um, verses 11 and 12, when these unclean spirits see him, they fall down and cry out, you are the son of God, and he shuts them up. He orders them not to tell anybody who he is, which is an interesting dynamic. We're going to need to ponder that together. So there's the first scene. Second scene, verses 13 through 19, Jesus gathers to himself from among this larger gathering, a group that he will call, that he will, um, call to be his not just his disciples, but his apostles, his emissaries, the ones that he will send out on mission. Uh, so he calls 12, and they're named at this point. Simon, whom, whom he renames Peter, James and John, sons of Zebedee, all the, all the 12 that we're familiar with. And then already in verse 19, Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. We're getting from the, almost the very beginning intimations of where where this story is going to go. It's going to go toward betrayal and abandonment and death and beyond. So, two scenes first of gathering toward Jesus. Then starting at the end of verse, verse 19, then he went home and the crowd came together again. So he's back at probably Peter's house, back at home. And now we have a scene, and it's the first great Markan sandwich that we get a scene of opposition to Jesus. 
The sandwich is made up for the outer, the bread, the outer pieces of the sandwich are Jesus' family. They show up in verse 21, and they, they go out to restrain him. They say he's gone out of his mind. So his family, his, Jesus' own family, are coming to the conclusion that Jesus has slipped a cog somewhere. Something's gone wrong. He's not, he's not acting normal. That's the beginning of the story. The end of the story comes in verses 21 through 25, 31 through 35, the last paragraph of chapter 3, where Jesus now redefines his family. We'll, talk, we'll spend some time looking at this on Sunday, and I invite you to, to think about it and wrestle with it now. Why would Jesus redefine his family? There's an odd an odd instance, uh, incidence in that redefinition, too. There's a mother, and there are brothers and sisters, but there is no father. What's that all about? So, here you have his family who love him, and they're kindly concerned for him, and they want to take care of poor Jesus, who's he's not acting normal. Something's gone wrong. In between, the meat of the sandwich is this uh, the Beelzebul controversy. You've got scribes who have come down from Jerusalem. Okay, not only has the word gotten out all around the territory and people come flocking, but it's reached the authorities at the capital, at headquarters. And they want to check out what's going on. Who is this guy? Is he on the up and up? How do we, how do we deal with him? And so they come down and check out Jesus, and they, they conclude that Jesus is, is, pay, is possessed by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. And that's why he's able to cast out demons. So Mark tells these two stories as a sandwich. The family who conclude Jesus is out of his mind, and they love him. And the authorities from Jerusalem who conclude Jesus is in the power of the, of the evil one. And that's why he can do what he's doing. What does it mean when Mark puts these two stories together? How do they reflect each other? How do they interpret each other. Then We'll talk about this, and I'd invite you to think about it in advance. The net result, in any case, is that family and authorities end up being linked together, whether they meant to be or not, and they are arrayed against Jesus. Now, I'll also point out for you in advance that this section also has... Um, a key verse that I've come to believe is, is one of Jesus' own mission statements. Verse 27, No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his property without first tying up the strong man. Then indeed the house can be plundered. In other words, Jesus' own mission statement is that he has come as the bandit to break into the strong man's house and tie him up and plunder his stuff. Play with that one between now and when we gather together on Sunday. Um, I mentioned how Mark will often have an inter a, pa a passage in the middle of a, se of a series that's kind of the interpretive key for the whole thing. I'd like to suggest that this Beelzebul controversy and how Jesus unpacks it and what he has to say that this is the interpretive key for this section. Enough said about that. 
I invite you to think about it and to wrestle with it and play with it until we get together on Sunday and we'll explore it some more. Now this is followed up in Mark by almost all of chapter 4. Mark hardly has any of Jesus' parables. If you want to study Jesus' parables, the places to go are especially Luke and also Matthew. That's where the great parables are. Mark has only a few, and most of them are gathered right here in chapter 4. So this is Mark's next great gathering of, of, uh, like, of like passages. They're sayings of Jesus and they're parables. It's really curious to take a look. So chapter 4, verses 1 through 34. This is the parable section. Of all of Jesus' parables, and I don't know how many of Jesus' parables Mark knew, but the ones that he picked to include here in this collection of parables are all seed parables. There are three main ones. Chapter 4, 1 through, seven, 1 through 9, the parable of the sower who go out, goes out to sow seed, and the seed falls on different kinds of soils with different kinds of results. Verses 13 through 20, Jesus unpacks that same parable. So you've got the parable of the sower and the soils unpacked. Then verse 26 26 through 29, the parable of the growing seed, the seed that grows secretly. Mark only has this parable. It doesn't show up in any other gospel. So here is a, a seed that the sower, that the farmer sows in his field, and then the farmer goes to sleep, and he's got no power over that seed. He doesn't know how it works. He sleeps and he rises and day and night, but the seed does its own work secretly and then grows on its own. What is it about this kingdom of the, of the reign of the gathering God that grows secretly on its own power? And then one more, verses 30 through 32, the mustard seed. The mustard, which is a weed, an invasive weed that gets, you don't want to get that in your field or in your garden, because it'll take over. It's this tiniest of seeds, but then it mushrooms into a huge shrub, enough for all the birds to come and nest in. It's unstoppable and it's invasive. So the, this, uh, m this mystery of the kingdom as seed that comes in and meets with all kinds of different responses, it has its own growing power that grows secretly, and it ex it's explosive in its results. So three seed parables, plus an explanation of one of them. Now woven in and around those, there are some, there are some other passages. Verses 10 through 12, Jesus explains privately to the disciples why he teaches in parables and why, why outsiders only get parables, but he will unpack things to his, his inner core privately. Why is that? Who's on the inside? Who's on the out? Why, what is this about teaching that is cryptic or unclear, but made clear to those on the inside? A second passage like that comes in verse 21 with another little parable then. Is a lamp to be put under the, under the bushel basket or under the bed and not on the lampstand? Whatever is, you know, the, the lamp is there to give light and to be seen. There's nothing hidden except to be disclosed. 
And then in the midst of this, Jesus says, verse 24, pay attention to what you hear. Literally, what he says in Greek is, see what you hear, watch what you hear. The more you give, the more you get, the more you will get. The more you catch, the more you will hang, and hang on to it, the more it will grow. So pay attention to what you're catching. We got, we're going to have to talk about that. And then finally, at the very end of this section, verses 33 and 34, with many such parables, Jesus spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He didn't speak except in parables, but then in private, he explained it to the disciples. So here again is that inside versus outside, those for whom it's all a mystery and those for whom the mystery gets opened. Who is on the inside and who's on the outside? I would just mention at this point that um, scholars of Mark have wrestled with this question of the secrecy of the inside versus the outside. Uh, one of the main ones for in the last generation was uh, a scholar named Frank Kermode, a literary scholar who wrote a book called The Gen Genesis of Secrecy, and he discusses uh, these passages in Mark, and particularly the inside versus the outside. So in chapter 4, at least, you've got the outsiders who just get parables, and the insiders who are getting everything explained. And yet, if we follow this through by the end of Mark's story, who's going to be left on the inside? We'll have to watch and see. Are there any insiders, finally, by the time we get to the end of Mark? But with all of this, what, we'll, what we're going to be wrestling with in, um, in our time together on Sunday is what is this dynamic of four verses against Jesus? Uh, why is it that some receive him gladly and some bristle against him? And then what is it about this mystery of the, of the, of the seed that comes in? Why do we receive it in different ways? Why, what is the mystery of, of when we receive it and when we do not? of what puts us on the inside and what keeps us on the outside. That's where we're going with this coming, uh, on this coming Sunday. The additional theme that I'd like to explore a little bit with you now is the theme of unclean spirits. This is another puzzlement for us. Unclean spirits, more often they're called demons, but Mark likes to call them unclean spirits. He'll use those two terms interchangeably. What are unclean spirits and why is Mark so hooked on unclean spirits? Just in what we've seen already in Mark, right away in chapter 1 in, with that, that possessed man there in the synagogue, chapter 1 verses 21 through 28, a major passage. It showed up again in chapter 3 now, 11 and 12, with Jesus forbidding the spirits to speak because they knew him. And again in the Beelzebul controversy, the issue of how is it that Jesus can cast out unclean spirits and what are we even talking about? Um, it's interesting that in Mark, the only ones who really recognize who Jesus is are the unclean spirits. And Jesus shuts them up. He keeps his identity under wraps. And this isn't the end. We'll see more major demon stories, unclean spirit stories in Mark as we go along. 
What are they? I think we've got a certain modern embarrassment around these passages because most of us live in a 21st century world of the Enlightenment and of scientific understanding and all of that that really doesn't have much room for something like evil spirits, demons, or, or angels, or sometimes even God. We struggle with spiritual entities having any real place in, in a technological world. What are they? Are they an ancient world's way of talking about mental illness? That's probably what you'll hear most often from 21st century readers of the Gospels. Oh, that's how they talked about mental illness back then. Well, maybe so. That may have been one of their go-to ways of understanding things like mental illness or other things like epilepsy or ailments that are difficult to comprehend what they're all about. It's interesting, though, that I'm stepping out of Mark into Matthew now. There's a, Matthew has a story about an epileptic boy who is possessed. And Matthew will use both terms, epilepsy and demon, at the same time, as if he understands that those could actually be two different things, but he locates them together. I don't have a good answer for all of this. I believe that, that, that these unclean spirits exist because they're there in the stories, and I believe and I, and I accept the stories as valid. But my own personal experience has not had contact with demons or, or things like that. I don't, they're not part of my active day-to-day -day world. How shall I understand these? Are they, are demons, are there actual demonic beings? Are there demons today? Well, it depends on where, what part of the world you're in. Um, my, my parents had dear friends who were missionaries in Madagascar. In Madagascar, they dealt with regularly with, with, with occult practices going on and with demon possession as a regular feature of their world. It was real for them. Are there demons in 21st century America? Again, it depends on where you go and what circles you move around in. Some of you may remember um, M. Scott Peck back in the, uh, in the latter part of the last century and the, the book, uh, his book, The Road Less Traveled. It was, a really, it was a book that he wrote, I think, kind of on his way toward becoming a Christian. Uh, his practice as a psychologist and psychiatrist and um, helping people with healthy living. Well, after he had finished written, writing that book, he wrote another book for the dark side of the things that he was seeing. He called it The People of the Lie. That's not as well-known a book of his, but if you get a chance to read it, it's worth reading, The People of the Lie. He begins that book with the story of one young man, an, a, a teenager, that was brought to his, to his practice for, for him to work with. Um, this young man was clearly going through emotional struggles of some kind. Well, it turned out that this young man's older brother had, not long before, um, killed himself with a shotgun. And then at that next Christmas, the parents gave the second boy for a Christmas present, the older son's shotgun, as a gift. 
I hope that shock goes through your guts as it went through mine. And as M. Scott Peck is telling about that story, he said he just found himself recoiling inside. What, what message are these parents giving their son when they give him his brother's suicide weapon? No wonder this poor, this poor, man, poor young man is in turmoil. How is he supposed to hear this? And do the parents really even know what message they're giving? Well, that's the first story in this book where, where M. Scott Peck starts to unpack what he calls the people of the lie, where there is something so disjuncted, disjoined, something so broken in the parents' thinking, in the parents' approach to life, that it smacks of evil and not simply as something's gone wrong. That's the first story in the book, and as he goes on to tell more and more stories, they get worse and they get darker. How do we deal with radical evil in our world, in our culture, in what happens historically? Um, how do we account for it? How do we make sense of it? Um, whether we think of, think of it in terms of demons or whether, how do we understand the phenomenon of evil in our world? That's what we're dealing with when, we're dealing, when Mark wrestles with unclean spirits. Now somewhere, and I no longer have the source, this is maybe 20 years ago, I was reading some sociolo a sociologist account of demon possession, the phenomenon of demon possession in the world. And this sociologist, whose name I can't remember, <laughs> made the comment that demon, the phenomenon of demon possession appears to show up and flourish the most in societies where there is radical oppression of some kind, where people are being oppressed and pushed down. It erupts in the form of, in, of individuals having being possessed by demons. I don't know if that's true or not, but I just found it a tantalizing notion that whatever this mystery of evil that shows up in broken lives, that's, it's just, it was just an interesting sociological observation that it tends to show up the most where there is, where there is radical oppression going on. Which made me wonder, is that a clue for Mark? Where in Mark do unclean spirits show up? Well, we've already looked at the first story in Mark, in chapter 1, and, it's and we raised the question, we wrestled with the question, when, when the unclean spirit say, says to Jesus, have you come to destroy us? Does us mean the demon kingdom? Or is us that structure of scribal authority there? Remember that was one of those envelope structures, one of those sandwich structures where the demon story, the unclean spirit story, was surrounded by or enveloped by Jesus' authority that contrasted with scribal authority. Do the two go together? Is the demon, is the unclean spirit speaking for Satan's kingdom, or is the unclean spirit speaking for the scribal, the kingdom of scribal authority and the oppression that goes along with that. 
I think that's an important question. The next major demon story that's going to show up, unclean spirit story, will be in Mark 5, verses 1 through 20. It's the major story of the man uh, among the tombs, the, the demoniac among the tombs. And there, there are two different clues there. One is the legion language, which in that, lang in that time only meant Rome. Rome had legions. But the other was all the is all the multiple uncleannesses that show up in that story. That's it for another day yet. We'll, so we'll, we'll come to that, I think it's next time, where we'll be looking at uncleanness. And so what is, what is the oppression that's going on there? What, where does that unclean spirit show up? And then there's going to be a third one in chapter 9, verses 14 to 29. It's the boy at the foot of the Mount of Transfiguration. And the disciples can't cast the spirit out. That's the one who's got something that appears like epilepsy. And Jesus casts it out. Um, and it's another major story. What's the location of the unclean spirit there? Is it in oppression of little ones? Oppression of the vulnerable? Or in issues of trust? I have more questions than I do answers around all of this, but I'm going to invite you to watch for, not, a, not to avoid this thorny issues of unclean spirits in Mark, but to ask Mark, why, why are they so prominent? And what are you trying to show us um, with these unclean spirits? Um, is Mark giving us some kind of an emblem of the structures of oppression? that Jesus has come to free us from. And for that matter then, Mark, why do you name them unclean spirits? What does that mean? Now, to, just to, to round out our podcast for now, one of the passages we're looking at on Sunday is that Beelzebub controversy where the Experts from Jerusalem come down and check Jesus out, and they decide that he's possessed by the by Beelzebul, the chief of demons. Uh, and Jesus shows their, how how silly their logic is. Is Satan's kingdom divided? And then Jesus speaks that little parable, that little word that I've suggested might be his um, his mission statement. He's come to tie up the strong man and plunder his goods. How does that fit in with all that we're seeing in Mark about unclean spirits? Okay, I have given you a whole lot more questions than answers, which is not unusual, but things to think about as we prepare to gather together on Sunday. Thank you, and we'll see you Sunday.